I don't know what to say about the pitchers um, because everybody's supposed to come on and the pitchers are supposed to proportionally shrink as the more people come on. But we will learn. We're still learning our way, feeling our way, and and I think some people, like those who are eating, <laughs> probably don't want to be seen. <laughs> um, I'm so glad to see you all. Is it done? Is it on? Yes. Um, Sue, it's a special welcome to you. For the longest time, um, some of us were concerned about your trip and your safety, and it was good news. We were following you and praying for you. Um, I but, appreciate that. That's what got me home that day. Yeah. Anyway, it was it was good news to hear that you got home safely, and and I know that half your trip was cut out. Um, but you anyway, know, it's good to see you again, and. Glad you're well. Barbara, it's hey. good to see you <laughs> finally here. Um, Technical wars. And uh, let's see, Gita is there too, and Mary Jane, it's really, where Where are you, by the way? I am sitting on my neighbor's deck. This is Lake Huron behind me, but I don't have Wi-Fi in my house, and so I have to come out in my neighbor's yard and borrow their Wi-Fi. Oh, funny. <laughs> so when it gets too dark... Funny. I may go in because the mosquitoes will get me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to have all of you, all of you. Um, good to see all of you. So, um, I want to start. Let's let's get going. It's a it's going to be a really busy night. Um, it's going to be one of those nights I think that um, Scott Emil described as coming for a cup of water and, <laughs> and feeling like he was hooked up to a fire hydrant. <laughs> Anyway, let's um, let's start. The last couple of weeks, we have read from Hopkins poems. Um, a couple of them, I don't think we've read together as a class. Oh, wait, before before we start, for those of you who haven't been here the last couple of weeks, um, the blog has been online for a long time. Mike has set it up so that um, anybody can go on to that blog. It's literaturesprophecy.com literaturesprophecyoneword.com and go to the blog and if you if you go up to the right hand corner and click on content it'll take you to the content page where all the audio is available. You can click on Homer or Shakespeare or Dostoevsky or whoever you want. If you go to the bottom of the page you have two options to um, St. Francis and St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. If you click on either one of those you'll, you'll get the the materials, hard files that I'm making available online that ordinarily I would have um, made hard copies of and given to you guys. So if you want to look at any of the materials, the poems or class outlines or schemes, I put some schemes on them. I'll show you one if I can, if I can work this. I'll, um, anyway, you can go there and use them at your will. You can print them, look at them. Um, some of them I think are really helpful. Um, I think that's all. We had a security problem last week because of confusions. In the next several weeks, after we get through these first couple of weeks, we should be able to um, um, disengage the invitation thing when you come in. So you don't have to go into a waiting room, you can just come into the the classroom, this space. You won't have to, you can bypass that. But we won't be able to do that for a couple of weeks. 
Jeannie last week made a special request that I was just, I very much enjoyed. She said, <laughs> cheerfully, cheerfully by the way, she said, I have a suggestion. When we finish Dostoevsky, how about if we do Hemingway's The Old Man of the Sea? And if you know The Old Man of the Sea, you know it's a very, it's, it's almost a long short story. It's just a very short. But I think it's probably one of his greatest works, and I actually was thinking about doing that for the same reason, because it's it's short. Um, so I think we'll do um, Hemingway, and then it's just, I've, I've got to make a decision about going farther back, but the, the two works most on my mind right now after Hemingway are um, Shakespeare's Pericles, because you know I've wanted to do that with you guys for a, a long time. There's it, it, it's one of the most mystical plays, along with uh, Winter's Tale, that, that I'm familiar with. So I would love to do that with you guys. I, I think I've told you a number of times, Pericles is the only character that I know of in, in uh, literature who actually hears the music of the spheres. So, um, so that and Billy Budd, Melville's Billy Budd. Billy Budd is, is probably one of the toughest-minded stories. I don't. I don't want to give things away. It's a. It's a short story. Um, after Melville did uh, Moby Dick, and it's explicitly Christian. Ex explicitly, it's one of the few works that we will read that will be explicit about Christian matters. So, anyway, I, I'm thinking about those. You know, coming up. Um, they're both short. So. Um, <laughs> nothing too long ahead of us in the future, but um, but so when we're done with this, I think we'll probably be able to finish Dostoevsky in the next couple of weeks. We'll do the trial, the trials next week, and I'll probably wind it up the following week. So okay, you okay. So tonight, um, what I'd like to do for I'm going to say a prayer in a minute. For the poems, if, if any of you want to go online, I'm going to do Carry and Comfort, or no, the other hard poem. What? I'm going to, um, I, I just, Mike's been monitoring. He, God, he's such a help. I'm going to mute all of you, okay, because um, it, it's clear from what everybody said. If I mute everybody, it clarifies the sound for everybody, and it also, I think, improves the picture quality. So um, I'm going to mute everybody. If any of you has a question at any time during our time tonight or any of the, any of the um, evenings we spend together, if any of you has a question, just unmute it and ask your question, okay? I don't want you to hesitate. I'm going to turn it off just because it should improve the quality of the sound generally for what I'm saying. Mike said he's picking up a little bit of an echo. So I'm going to mute you guys. Um, um, this mute layer. Mute. Okay. The two poems, one of them is a dark poem, but we read a dark poem last week, and I wanted to continue it because we're heading into a very dark part of Brothers Karamazov, but I wanted to put something else with it that wasn't quite so heavy. So I'm going to do um, um, No Worse There Is None and a poem called, sorry, a poem called 
um, God's grandeur, and both of them, both of them are online. So if you go to um, the website, to the bottom of the page, you can get a a, um, a copy of it. Okay. So let's let's start with a prayer. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, I cannot express the joy of seeing Karen. <laughs> I cannot express the joy of seeing so many of you together. My great regret, and it's not a small sorrow for me, is that we're not present in the in our bodies physically. Because if we were, we could see all each other together. And um, but it's a great joy to see you all. Um, Karen, it's especially good to see you because we haven't seen you for a while. Anyway, a great joy. Thank you, um, Lord, for the gift of this. Um, um, we started this years ago, and so many people have stayed with this. It's been a great gift, certainly to Suzanne and me, I think to everybody, to um, do this with everybody, to have our lives opened up like um, this with um, these great poets, and for all of us to open our lives to each other the prayers that we get from each other, um, the sorrows, the wounds, the burdens that all of us carry that so often we don't know about. A great, great gift. A great, great gift. So um, thank you, Lord, for all of that. We are grateful to be together tonight. Um, I ask a blessing on all that we're doing. Help us, <laughs> help me get past these technical difficulties. Um, I'm sorry we're not in the body. Our whole faith roots us in our bodies. It's what sets us off from almost every other faith. You entered a body. You took on a body. You sanctified it. You changed our whole attitude towards the body, things physical. Um, so many denominations today look past it, get around it. They're in their heads. Everything we've been doing is to get us back in our bodies to see that there's something extraordinary to the human person you created. Every one of these poets reminds us of something great in the human character at a time when there's so much demeaning our human nature, killing it off even. Uh, it's a great sorrow for all of us. I ask prayers um, or your blessings on all of the we're doing and I ask a special protection for all of us in our country and most especially in this group and in everybody's families. Protect us from this disease. Let no harm come to us, please. Hold that disease off. Keep it off. Um, help everybody to be careful to not be cavalier. It's a grave, grave danger. People are dying. Help everybody be careful, prudent, and humble, trusting in you, not taking you for granted. Help us all to do what we should do to keep this thing off. Um, glad for this time together. Um, we offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here are the two poems. <clears throat> the first one is called No Worse There Is None. Remember, the poem we read last week is called Carrion Comfort. Um, these are the two of the darkest poems that Hopkins wrote, and they were poems presumably written during a spiritually tough time in his life, when he became a priest and 
had to deal with spiritual things within himself. Remember in Carrying Comfort he said, No, I'll not carry in comfort to spare. Carrying comfort, remember, carrying is what vultures feed on. And what he's saying is he will not feed on despair. He will not take those things inside of himself and indulge in them. Whatever his sorrows, whatever his difficulties, he, he will not give in. So he goes, not, I'll not carry in comfort to spare, not feast on thee, not untwist, slack thee. He goes on and on. He will not give in to that. Obviously it's a strain or he wouldn't be saying that. Um, in the poem I'm going to read tonight, it's another dark one dealing with the difficulties of the spiritual life. Um, it's called um, No Worse There Is None. And remember, you can click on the website. I think you can do it now and pull it up on your own screen. I'm not sure how these things work, but they're all there under our class, under the Hopkins folder, um, so you can have a physical look at it if you if you want to. This is Hopkins. <clears throat> no worse there is none. No worst there is none. Pitched past pitch of grief, more pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring, tougher things to come. Comforter, where, where is your comforting? This is Christ on a cross. We all want to escape it. <laughs> where is your comfort when he's calling us to a cross so often? Comforter, where, where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? My cries heave, herds long, huddled in a mane, a chief woe, world's sorrow. On an age-old anvil, wince and sing, then lull, then leave off. Fury had shrieked, no lingering. Let me be fell, force I must be brief. Oh, the mind, mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful sheer, no man fathom. I, to me, those are some of the most extraordinary, two of the most extraordinary lines of all of poetry. Our mind, because we're made in the image of God, can take us to steeps and depths and heights unlike anything else in creation. It makes the dangers graver because the height of the fall, the length of it can be so great. Oh, the mine, mine has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful sheer, no man fathom, hold them cheap, may who ne'er hung there. People who've never gone there won't know. Nor does long our small durance deal with that steep or deep. Here, creep, wretch, under a comfort serves in a whirlwind. All life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. No worse there is none. I wanted to read another. I, I probably am going to read both of these next week because they hold together something very dark and something good. This one's called God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness, greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent, no matter how much we trot it down, no matter how much we beat it down with industry or ravaging nature. For all this, 
nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep-down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, O oh morning, at the brown brink eastward springs. Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe bright wings. God's grandeur. Okay. Um, uh-oh. Oh, God. Can I have that, Doc? God. Let me see if I can... Um... Yeah, hold on. Let's see if I can... Oh, get me back here, please. Good. How do I bring this? Um, I'm still learning this, so... Hold on, you guys. That's one. Um, you guys all have that image? Oops, yeah, you can't... Um, What's the other one? How do I get back? And share. Um. Okay. Oh, God. Am I back? Do you do it? They can't talk. Yeah, I just. I don't even know how to. I, can you get a picture of them? Yeah, I've got a picture, but Tell I don't even know. Wave if they can hear you. Um, unmute. Mike, are you there or or Mark? How do I pull up that that panel on the right that shows whether people are coming in and need to be invited? Um, you push the participants button. Doctor. Oh, Mike, participant. There it is. God bless your soul. Um, I wanted to bring up another, um, looks like I can only share one thing at a time. Um, how do I do this? Mike, what do I do to get this thing off to bring another, oh, here. Um, it looked like when you shared it previously, it, it seemed to work just fine. But I can only bring one thing up at a time, is that it? Huh? Yeah, fortunately. Okay. Everybody, everybody, take a look at this. Um, I wanted to go back for a moment to Plato's Cave um, for a, a general overview on something that Dostoevsky clearly understood well. Okay. Um. In the readings, in the readings in the last couple of weeks, there have been a number of readings from the Old Testament that are an expression of the psalmist's love, or or even the prophets, Jeremiah. We've been with Jeremiah, but a number of other ones. But in the reading, particularly in this last weekend, there was a reading from the Psalm that to me spoke so directly to what we're doing. The refrain in the Psalm at Psalm 119 is, Lord, I love your commands. I've said, O Lord, that my part is to keep your words. The law of your mouth is to me more precious than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 
Your kindness comforts me according to your promise to your servants. Let your companions come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Um, over and over and over again, we keep hearing in the Old Testament um, about God's love of justice. I said before that it, it seems to me that the, the virtue... How do I... Um, how do I mute this? Um, Mike, I've lost that right panel again. I'm afraid to click anything to click off again. Uh, that's okay. I think it's just Mark that's unmuted. Maybe if you could just. Oh, shit. sorry. No, I want to get I want to get that right panel up. Oh, I can't get it with this page up. Is that it? No, you can't. Okay. You would have to unshare the page. Okay. Okay. Um, one of the most important things we get from the Old Testament is God's love of justice. He keeps calling us to our law. The refrain in Psalm 119 is, I love your commands, the law of your mouth. Um, the great thing that he wants to do is keep your word. Christ is the word. Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. I, just, I, I think this is an important aspect of our faith that we've lost in our modern world. And I think particularly because of the fundamentalist focus on faith. Christ and the Father and the Spirit were one in the Trinity, always. They indwelled. When Christ came to this world, he didn't want, he, there's nothing he did to undermine Yahweh, the Father. That was his Father. He wouldn't abrogate that law. He wouldn't dismiss it. He wouldn't undermine it. The, the things that he went against were those accretions that the Jews had given. But the law itself is God's order. We're, everything we're trying to do is conform ourselves to it. And all that Christ makes possible because of the divine love he offers us, particularly in the sacraments. So there's an order to the universe, a way. So if, if those of you who've done the Plato thing will look at the sheet I've got on the board. In the middle one, I'm showing man in the presence of a, lot of, a larger order. It, um, it can't be just explained in terms of positive laws, the laws that are on the book. There's an order to creation. And everything in the Middle Ages made clear that, that the word, Christ, was visible in every single thing in creation. Its mode, its manner, its order, its purpose, everything reflected him. That's a worldview we've lost. The struggle that we have as humans is to learn to order our souls to make them one with God's order. Plato's um, way of um, formulating it, you know, um, ages ago, was to say, if you remember, that the soul has um, two faculties, the rational and the appetitive. And the appetitive, the desires, are divided into two. The spirited passions, those things that love the noble things, the transcendent things, beauty, truth, goodness, oneness, unity, and the appetites, the desires of physical things. Plato said, I'm going to take this off now if you're all, you, if you've got, the, the, the diagram on the right is the cave. And you remember that according to Plato, every one of us is in a cave. There's a fire behind us. We've got books in our hands. The books form the way we think. And we, um, the images from that book are projected onto the walls and we take those images for reality. So whatever we see with our senses, whatever they are, we take that as real. It's a very materialistic view of the world. And Plato's saying, no, those are only images of something 
deeper, something harder to get to. It's only when a man begins to question himself that he comes out of the cave. Um, okay, I just wanted to review that. Um, oops, where am I? And um, ask you to keep it in mind. Um, hi, Candy. Um, and hi, Nikki. It's good to see you again. Hi. Um, keep that in mind. One of the questions that I'm going to ask later is, is what does Dostoevsky with that view? He was a good reader of Plato. In fact, he actually uses images of the cave later in the story. But if you keep that, that platonic notion of the soul, the rational, the thumos, the spiritedness, or the physical appetites, how would you line up all of the characters in the book according to that scheme? Because Dostoevsky's got four major characters, um, five actually, Fyodor, um, Dmitri, Ivan, Alyosha, and Smerdyakov. How would you describe the order of their souls? And according to Dostoevsky, is he following Plato or is he, doing, is he changing him? Because Plato had no idea that somebody would come into the cave, right? He said the task was getting out of it, and according to him, if we asked questions, we could get out. To wonder, to begin to question, we would loosen our chains and work our way out of the cave. He didn't have any notion that a god came into the cave to suffer um, and lead us out. And you know that one of the great themes of the Brothers Karamasa is the importance of suffering, not only for our own sins, but for those of others. That's a fundamental principle of the entire work. So I just wanted you to, I, I don't want, I, I may come back to this at the end of the class, but if we don't get time to do deal with it at the end, I, I definitely want to take it up next week and maybe even start with it, ask you guys where you'd put that, because we're going we're gonna to start closing, finishing up the... Um, the brothers next week. Um, wow. Sorry. Um, okay. okay. Some of the major themes of the brothers Karamazo. Um, I want to just very, very briefly review um, some of the major concerns that we've had all along. And then tonight what I'd like to do is spend more time than I usually want to going through passages because I want to get everybody back in this book again because I know it's been a lot of, a long work and, and I'm not sure um, that, um, that everybody's holding on to it or even read it. Mike, are you still online? Yeah, I'm still here. It, it, I, on the on the page on the right, it says for a number of people calling. Are yeah, they? I, I wouldn't worry about that. Okay. I think everyone can still hear okay. you. Yeah. Okay. So some of the major themes. The the first one, Dostoevsky is depicting a struggle at a time when Russia is undergoing a trial of faith. We've talked about the importance of that. Um, that all of these modern European Enlightenment ideas have begun to enter 
Russia too too quickly, too artificially. Everything that Peter did to try to just impose them quickly um, had a disastrous effect. And Dostoevsky is showing a Russia that's being um, divided, um, in some ways violated, broken, um, because of the, the conflict between all of these new progressive ideas and old Holy Mother Russia. This traditional world that looked back to the monasteries and um, a Christian way of life, a traditional way of life. Um, and last week, um, we, we closed up our time together with the question that I had. Um, what was Dostoevsky showing us about the effects of reason? Because the conflict between reason and faith is one of the major conflicts of the whole, whole work. And what we saw in the, in the interrogation of Dmitri, you remember when the interrogators came and interrupted him and Grushenka, was that every one of them was convinced Dmitri was guilty. And we had all of these, all of this evidence making it um, absolutely clear. I mean, I'm, I'm, if, if you hear a judge, if you've ever been impaneled and you know you've got to sit on a criminal case, the judge is going to say, beyond a reasonable doubt, if you have a reasonable doubt, then you shouldn't convict somebody. Um, but if everything in reason points to that conviction, then you have every basis for making the conviction. And I'll just go over some of the pieces of evidence very quickly. So the interrogators are interrogating, and one of the and one of the most damning pieces of evidence is right from the beginning that has nothing to do with him and the, uh, the interrogators. Grushenka says she drove him to it. She was assuming that he was guilty. Um, so she seems a witness against him. Dmitri confesses to killing the old man. By old man, he means Grigory because he believed he killed Grigory. Um, there's a misunderstanding. Um, when he left Madame... Um, Koklakovs, um, he said he wished to kill somebody and he took the pestle and it looked like Fyodor was killed with a stone object. He said the gate was open but only Smerdyakov, or the door, only Smerdyakov and Dmitri could have opened it. Um, so it had to be either Smerdyakov or him and nobody believes that Smerdyakov was, was capable of such a thing. He acknowledged himself that he wanted to kill his father um, um, the police inspector, when he hears Dmitri's story, says that's exactly what a desperate man would say with all of the reasons that he's given. He himself, Dmitri himself, says, I can't imagine anybody but me doing it. We've talked about this through the whole episode. He's so innocent. He, he has no scruples about being honest. He's one of the most honest people in the book, truly. He's innocent, he's honest, he's noble. Um, he acknowledges the worst things about himself over and over again through that whole section. The officials find the money. Um, he can't explain to their satisfaction where it came from, how he got it. Um, all the evidence from witnesses around, the innkeeper and all the townspeople support him because they thought he had at least um, 3,000 rubles when he claims he didn't. Um, so Fenya, um, Perkotin, his friend, the investigator, all have evidence against him. And more importantly, he had motives. Um, the mother gave him it, um, the, the property. He felt he deserved it. His father was keeping it back. He was convinced that his father would use it to advance his cause through Grushenka. Um, so he had a motive in the money, and he also had a motive of jealousy. 
because he knew that his father wanted Grushenka um, when he did too. So what we saw in all of that, and, and one of the most important things, and I just want to underscore this tonight because it's not a small thing. You remember when we looked at the Dmitri um, crisis, that whole episode, the narrator makes two um, time shifts, both of them absolutely crucial. The first one occurs right at that moment when the narrator is describing Dmitri um, seeking Grushenka and coming to his father's house, wondering if he's going to find her there, and looking in the window and seeing his father. And in that moment, um, um, the narrator describes him as loathing his father. The hatred is deep. And he reaches for the pestle in his pocket. It's like a murderous object with murder in his eyes, and then the narrative breaks. So we're left at a point where we think he's going to kill his dad, his father. It shifts to uh, Prokotin, who begins to do his investigations. He goes to the woman, he goes to Fenya, and he, when, the, when Madame um, um, Kokokov, Kokokov um, tells him that she didn't give Dmitri money, and he knows that Dmitri had all this money when he came back to see him, He's convinced that, it, that Dimitri did kill his father and he got the money. So from two perspectives, and then um, um, Perkotin goes to the police because he's concerned that Dimitri would have killed his father, and it's there that he finds out that the father's dead, old Fyodor's dead. So everything that's going on um, works to convince us that um, Dimitri killed his father. And all the evidence collaborates that, supports it. So we go through that whole scene, or that whole episode, and then the police take him away, um, and that's where we're left when we begin the Yvonne um, crisis. And that's, that's where we are tonight. So hold on for a second. Um, I want to go back and read a couple of passages because every one of them goes to an important principle in the book. And after I do that, what I'd like to do is I'm going to go through the chapters in the Yvonne um, section to try to flesh things out because I, I may be wrong here, but my sense is the book is big. A lot of you have struggled with it and it's a lot to hold on to and some of you, you know, haven't looked at it for months. Um, some of you I know are finished, but I don't know where you are, but I don't want to take it for granted. And you, you know my concern. I, I try to do everything I can to get out of abstractions into concrete things, so I want to get in the book. So I'm going to go th fairly thoroughly through the chapters, and then I've got major, major questions about Ivan and his crisis and Smerdyakov. Okay? So that's where we're going tonight. So two major, two major themes tonight. One is a follow-up to last week. One of the themes last week is the building up of reason. That reason has marshaled all of this evidence that makes it fairly clear that Dimitri killed his father. That's absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. That's not, it for me it shows how brilliant, what a genius Dostoevsky was. That he could manage it that way puts us in a position of judging. We're judging another human being on the basis of reason. 
And all the reason says that guy's bad. He killed his father. It's an act of parasite. So Dostoevsky is doing everything he can to put us there. It's a little bit like being in a Jane Austen novel when the whole novel turns, when one of her heroines realizes she's been wrong the whole time. We're there. Every, everything appealing to our reason says he's the killer. And that's where we're left. And, and now the Yvonne story starts. So one of the themes last week was the building up of reason. I would call the action, remember the, the difference between a plot and an action, the action of this Yvonne section as the tearing down of reason. It's getting beneath the surface. It's like being in, in Plato's cave. When you, just when you think you've got all the answers because things appear to be a certain way, you realize they're not. So one of the most important qualities of the action that we're going to look at tonight is um, Ivan, who intellectually is, is probably the most brilliant man in the... Well, we've got to come to that. He certainly is a brilliant man. Um, is going to be undone. It's going to be undone. So we're going to watch... We've seen reason building it itself up to make a case, to make a judgment against a human being. And now we're going to go through an action where so much that reason has been doing is going to seem to be undone. Okay, So that's one of the themes. The other is this notion of brotherhood that's at the center of Christ's call, that we be unified in our faith by love. That's the great call to Christ, Okay, by Christ to us. We've gone through this from the opening section on Zosima, where you, you know we go back into Zosima's past and we keep getting those quotes. But hold on to those two things, okay? The undoing of reason and the call to brotherhood from Christ. And whether these new Enlightenment ideas from the West are actually supporting Christ's call or undermining it, okay? I want to read. I want to read um, some passages, and ask you just to hold on to them. Some we've read before, but I want. They're just so important that I want to carry them forward. I'm going to continually. I'll probably quote them again. I'm going to continually quote them so we can carry them forward because it's important to keep them with us as we go. Okay. So page three hundred three. Um, this is in the Zosima section um, remember when Zosima had um, refused to fire the shot in the duel threw the pistol away and his unit was embarrassed, ashamed because he's a soldier he's a soldier and he embarrassed everybody and then everybody realized how courageous it was because he took the shot first before he did that. And then opinion changes, and he's admired. And his reputation gets about, and suddenly this stranger turns up at his door and begins to talk with him, and Dostoevsky, I mean, Dostoevsky uh, doesn't know why he's doing it, but he's an important figure. On page 303, this guy, this stranger, says... Um, Remember, Zosim is younger now, so he's not the monk that offers the spiritual kind of wisdom that we've seen him offering to the older monks of the community. He's a younger man still. This older man comes to him, apparently with a wisdom that 
has come to him because of his suffering. Okay, And he says this on page 303. Um, I have to learn still to work with this thing. I'm so... Un Wish I could get back a little bit from, but um, he went on. As for each man, remember, Crime and Punishment, one of Dostoevsky's, probably his second greatest novel, Crime and Punishment, that all of us are in sin, all of us deserve suffering. One of the themes of the story is the tendency in human beings to make a judgment of other people as if they're innocent and shouldn't share in the suffering of somebody else. And Zasim is saying, to be with Christ, you can't do that, because Christ has asked us to be with everybody, whatever the suffering is. So this is the stranger saying, as for each man being guilty before all and for all, that's almost a paraphrase of Zasima. As for each man being guilty before all and for all, besides his own sins, your reasoning about that is quite correct, and it's surprising that you could suddenly embrace this thought so fully. And because... Zosima is saying this as a young man just after he came out of that duel. And indeed it's true that when people understand this thought, the kingdom of heaven will come to them no longer in a dream but in reality. But when will this come true? I exclaimed to him ruefully. And will it ever come true? Is it not a dream? Ah, he said, now you do not believe it. You preach it, you preach it, and do not believe it yourself. Know then that this dream, as you call it, will undoubtedly come true. Believe it. The right now for every action has its law. This is a matter of the soul, a psychological matter. In order to make the world over anew, people themselves must turn into a different path psychically. Until one has indeed become the brother of all, there will be no brotherhood. No science or self-interest will ever enable people to share their property and their rights among themselves without offense. Each will always think his share too small. Remember Dante, those of you done, remember when we were in the level of envy and purgatory and we were in a commercial republic where everybody was competing for everybody else for a piece of the pie. So the two great sins that the commercial regime encourages are pride and envy. Each will always think his share too small, and they will keep murmuring. They will envy and destroy one another. You ask, when when will it come true? It will come true, but, f but first the period of human isolation must conclude. What isolation? I asked him. That which is now reigning everywhere, especially in our age. <coughs> but it is not all concluded yet. Its term has not come. For everyone now struggles, most of all, to separate his person. <coughs> Sorry separate his person, person wishing to experience the fullness of life within himself. And yet what comes out of all his efforts is not the fullness of life, but full suicide. For instead of the fullness of self-definition, they fall into complete isolation. For all men in our age are separated into units. Each seeks seclusion in his own hole. Each withdraws, withdraws from the others, hides himself and hides what he has, and ends by pushing himself away from people. He goes on like that. Um, he goes on in the next page to declare that he killed a person and it's left him with his grief. And you know, we, we learn from this man, that he has lived with this guilt for over a decade. He suffered um, enormously. He's wanted to confess it to somebody. 
um, Zosimov keeps pushing him to confess it, and the man becomes so outraged he's going to come back and kill him. But he finally does, and when he does, nobody believes him, and they think he's mad, and they begin to blame um, Zosimov. That is, they begin to judge him, condemn him, because they, he, they think he's at fault for this man losing his mind. So, this habit of condemning runs through the book, okay? <clears throat> um, on page 314, Zosima is speaking to the monks um, in the middle of 314, and therefore the idea of serving mankind, of the brotherhood and oneness of people is fading more and more in the world. And indeed the idea now, um, sorry, the idea now even meets with mockery. For how can one drop one's habits? Where will this slave go now that he is so accustomed to satisfying the innumerable needs he himself invented? He is isolated. What does he care about the whole? They have succeeded in amassing more and more things, but have less and less joy. Very different is the monastic way. Obedience, fasting, prayer are laughed at. Um, um, so, in the commercial regime, people pride themselves on their accomplishments, their wealth. Um, remember when we looked at Hawthorne in the Scarlet Letter, we saw people um, taking that as evidence of their being saved, their material prosperity. The sacraments didn't exist. It was how industrious you were that showed how, um, how, how truthful your faith was. Um, that way, that old monastic way is being replaced by a modern state. So it's just another way of emphasizing again this change, this kind of dislocation that's going on in Russia. That an old Mother Russia, Holy Mother Russia is is breaking down and being replaced by a modern state. The great irony of this is shortly after this, Russia is going to um, form itself into a communist state, a totalitarian state. Um, 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 a couple, remember, um, Dos or Zosimov said, that's on page 164, I won't go back to it because I've read it a number of times, but remember, in his, his counsel to the elders in the monastery, he said, if you're here and don't feel that you're the worst of the worst, you're not here for the right reason. Because if you're going to come to a monastery, you come because you know you're the worst of the worst and you're going to serve humanity. So it's only when you will do that that you will bring Christ to the world. And there's that long passage that I've read a number of times when he said, describes a judge. If the judge cannot identify himself with that sinner, if he doesn't fully identify with himself so that he says, I'm a sinner like you, he will never be able to make the kind of judgment he should. He'll be above himself, righteous, condemning. And it, um, I, I don't think Zosima is saying, you don't, you don't um, condemn a man to jail or sentence him. It's, but the spirit in which you do it matters. It reminds me of the scene with Christ and the elders and the woman of adultery. Um, so, 
hold on to those readings um, and 320 one last one before we go to Dimitri, go to Dimitri. <clears throat> oh here it is this is that page on 320 at the bottom remember especially that you cannot be judge of anyone for there can be no judge of a criminal on earth until the judge knows that he too is a criminal exactly the same as the one who stands before him that he is perhaps most guilty of all for the crime of the one standing before him. When he understands this, when he will be, then he will be able to be a judge. However mad that may seem, it's true. For if I myself were righteous, perhaps there would be no criminal standing before. If you are able to take upon yourself the crime of the criminal who stands before you, whom you are judging in your heart, do so at once, suffer for yourself. Remember this principle, we suffer for everyone in everyone that's what Christ brought to the world that's what Zosim has been saying all along um, go go forward now I'm trying to get up to Dimitri and finish to get to Yvonne turn to um, page 411 remember Dimitri is flying on I hope I've got this right. Yeah. Yeah, he's flying off to the um, the tavern to meet with um, Grushenka and pushing madly. And he turns to um, the driver, Andrea, and says on the bottom of 411, um, look out, I'm coming. No coachman. Do not run them down. You must not run anyone down. You must not spoil people's lives. And if you've spoiled someone's life, punish yourself. If you've ever spoiled, if you've ever harmed someone's life, punish yourself and go. That is, do penance, <laughs> to put it simply. All this burst from Mitya as if in complete hysterics. Andre, though he was surprised at the gentleman, kept up the conversation. Um, 412. Um, Mitch is looking ahead to the outcome because you know that he's at this point he's planning to take his life but he wants Andrea to do nothing to hurt anybody else's life and he talks about going to hell he says to hell Mitch is suddenly interrupted burst into abrupt unexpected laugh Andre you simple soul tell me will Dimitri go to hell or not what do you think what Dimitri said or what Andrea says is Christ harrowed hell he went out to take the people who should come out but hell's going to be filled up with people who deserve to be there, but not you. You are a simple soul. You have a good soul. Um, where does he say? Um, you see, sir, when the Son of God was crucified on the cross and died, he went straight from the cross to hell to free those. Um, that's who hell is meant for, those people. You, sir, you're just like a child to us. That's how we look at you. And though you're one to get angry that you are, sir, the Lord will forgive you for your simple heart. You Will you forgive me? Why should I forgive you? You never did anything to me. And it's then that Dimitri makes this prayer. Take me, Lord. Do not judge me. Do not, uh, for I have already condemned myself. I'm loathsome, but I love you. If you send me to hell, even there I will love you. From there I will cry that I love you until the ages of ages. Um, go to 549, one last one, and we will... F sorry, 591. We will um, 
we will look at Ivan. This is when Dmitri has been taken to prison and Alyosha comes to visit him. So the whole Dmitri section, the interrogation is closed. Dmitri's in jail and Alyosha comes to visit him. And 591. Um, we already heard from Dmitri that he learned to see himself for the first time as he really was naked when the interrogators had him undress and he was humiliated and had to confess all of his sins. So it was a it's a little bit like that moment when Dante comes to the foot of purgatory, remember, and he has to confess his sins. He has to openly acknowledge who he is. Dimitri's gone through an experience like that, a kind of harrowing experience. Here he's in jail, and, um, and Alyosha comes to him and he says, Brother, in these last two months I've sensed a new man in me. A new man has arisen in me. He was shut up inside me, but if it weren't for this thunderbolt, he never would have appeared. A grace. Frightening. What do I care if I spend 20 years pounding out iron in the mines? I'm not afraid of that. But I am afraid of something else now, that this risen man not, not depart from me. One of the things that he does not want to lose is this new man. And remember, one of the fundamental principles of Christianity is the importance of getting past that old man, i.e. Fyodor Karamazov. And remember, all the brothers say, he's in us, we're Karamazov. To, to put away that old person and become a new creation in Christ, a new man. He's beginning to feel, it's like a salvific change, uh, um, a purification in his character. He's, he's had to confront his sins, he's sorry for them, and he wants to suffer. And he's afraid of losing that. He says, I don't want it to depart from me. Even there in the mines underground, you can find a human heart in the convict and murderer standing next to you, and you can close, be close to him, because there too it's possible to live in love and suffer. The point is, our material conditions cannot be the condition for love. The modern world thinks when I have everything the way I want it, when I'm comfortable, <laughs> when I'm not on a cross, when I have everything I want it, then I'll be able to love. Dimitri saying the country that our material conditions, love is not contingent on our material conditions. Christ, Christ made that clear. You can revive and resurrect the frozen heart in this convict. You can look after him for years and finally bring up from the cave into the light a soul that is lofty now, a suffering consciousness. You can revive an angel, resurrect a hero. There are many of them. There are hundreds, and we are all we are all guilty for them. Why did I have a dream about a wee one at such a moment? Why is the wee one poor? We kept dreaming of this poor child and how important it was to suffer for him. It was a prophecy to me at that moment. It's for the wee one that I will go because everyone is guilty for everyone else. For all the wee ones because there are little children and big children. All people are wee ones. So. Once again, he's repeating Zosima's principle um, because everyone is guilty for everyone. Um, we're um, we're guilty for everybody else. Um, okay, now let me let me go to the Ivan section. I want to just recall one important thing before we go on. Um, two of the defining ideologies of the modern state 
because Dostoevsky is about this tension between status, progressive ideas, a, a new state um, that will do away with superstitions of religion because religion belongs to the past, it belongs to ignorant people who believe in God. The state of ideas are a state without those superstitions. The state will control everything, it can do away with problems, get rid of classes. There are two dominant theories of the modern world, and you can see them everywhere in America. The first one is the, um, the idea of, um, God, my mind, um, with, with Hobbes, Locke, and Thoreau, the social contract theory. We've talked about this before, the social contract theory. Um, all of those men are the founders of the social contract theory. The social contract but that defines America, defines every political regime in the West. It has for centuries. The basic premise of that is that man exists in a state of war. It's his nature to be in a state of war. Um, he can only come out of it if he makes a contract with everybody else. It's a form of compromise. It says, I won't kill you, <coughs> and you won't kill me if we do this. So they form a contract out of fear, out of pride, in order to save their necks. So the basis of the modern regime is self-interest. I won't do this if you don't do this to me. And we'll get along. We'll agree to have peace so long as we can do this. So at the center of it is not self-sacrifice or giving or love, it's a political social contract. You compromise in everything you do. That's one. At the root of that is self-preservation, self-interest. <coughs> the second dominant ideology of the modern world is Marxism. And according to Marx, the, the important struggle that men have got to take on to improve, to get rid of the suffering that goes on in our life is to engage in a battle. Um, um, those who are being oppressed, you, I mean, you can hear this in everything that's going on in our country today. Those who are being oppressed have to take on their oppressors. The modern in America would be those who are in charge of a systemic injustice. It's built into the system. The only way, the only way that man's going to achieve a justice is by going to war with the oppressors. <clears throat> so the end is. It's, tr truthfully, I mean, I don't have time to go into this. It's taking a transcendent reality, heaven, a perfect world, and bringing it down. Um, but in order to achieve it, man's going to have to go to war. He's going to have to go to battle with the oppressors, those who are in charge of this systemic injustice, this systematic injustice. So, on the one hand, you have the social contract theorist, the self-interest that's implied. The other, you've got a Marxist theory that it'll only be when you get rid of the oppressors um, that all people will be equal and that we will have complete peace here. So the whole political backdrop of what's going on politically in, in all of this concern about brotherhood is the, is the tension between those two things and the love that Christ calls us to. That's been exemplified by Zosifim and that has now been exemplified by Dimitri. He's willing, even though he, he knows he didn't kill his father, he's willing to go to jail because he believes it's, it's important to suffer in all for all, because we're all sinners.
That was the love that Christ bought us. That's the love he wants to take to his death. So that's the tension up to this point. And now we're going to do the the um, Yvonne section. But let me let me stop here for any questions. Um, um, any any of you any of you have any questions before we look at the um, the Yvonne section? The um, it's going to be the so we've had three crises: the Zosima crises, the Alyosha crises, the Dimitri crises, and now we're having Yvonne. And I've been describing it in terms of an arc, um, with each crisis becoming deeper and more intense. And um, I'll tentatively make the claim right now that the crisis involving Ivan is the most important. It, it, it in some ways continues what began with Dimitri, and it, and it goes to greater philosophic depths in some ways. But, but I'll, I just put that out tentatively. But let me stop. Any questions before we look at um, um, Ivan and what's going on with him and Smerdyakov and the devil before we get to the really <laughs> juicy stuff? You all look so serious. Where'd you all go? Is everybody... No questions or comments? Tracy? Oh, Fred, do you have something? No? Everybody have a good sense of the action as it's building that we've gone through? Zosima's crisis, Alyosha's, Dimitri's, the longest so far was Dimitri. I think there's a reason for that, but I, I want to wait on that um, because I'd like to put all of the brothers together, but and now we're gonna we're gonna move into this intense crisis with Smerdyakov, who is the, in I think without a doubt the most evil person in the book, and all that happened between Ivan and Smerdyakov. It's um, it's pretty dark, pretty dark part of the book. No questions before we go there. Did somebody else? Did somebody? No, they're all they're all here, Doug. Francis, come on, I don't believe you don't have a question. No? Okay. Do you have a question, Doc? Okay, let's let's go to book ten. I want to briefly cover the first part about before we get to the Yvonne section in this book, book ten or part four rather, part four. We're taken from um, Dimitri in jail and um, the focus is turned towards the kids, remember? And Kolya, this very bright, precocious young kid who's very cocky, very, in some ways, condescending. He's, he's aware of how smart he is. He's on his way to Ilyusha's to take a dog to his friend. Um, he and Ilyusha had been friends and Ilyusha had confided in him a secret that Smerdyakov taught him a trick. This comes from Smerdyakov. Smerdyakov had taught, this is, it just turns my stomach describing it. 
Smerdyakov flattered this young kid and taught him a trick and um, showed him um, how to put pins in a piece of bread and feed it to a dog. And he did it to his dog, um, Zuchka, and the, when the dog swallowed the bread with the pins in it, he choked up and started um, shaking violently and ran off. And Ilyusha was um, crushed and hurt. Um, and we also know that he's been Ill, Ill. But he confided in Kolya, and when, and when um, Kolya learned that, he stepped back. Um, I think from his perspective, in a sense of justice, that what this kid, this friend did was horribly wrong. And they're estranged. The, the two boys become estranged, and um, Ilyusha actually stabs Kolya with a knife. We, we know that, remember, Alyosha comes in on this, this, on this one scene where all these, peop, all these kids are stoning Ilyusha, and, he, and he's not quite sure why, and we found out later because um, um, what had happened with his father and Dmitri. But at this point, Kolya's taking a dog to Ilyusha. Um, it, it's like a way of making amends. He's taught the dog tricks, and when he comes into the room, all of the boys are there with Alyosha, and he suddenly lets out a whistle, and this dog, who's named um, Perzvan, Perzvan, comes flying into the room and jumps up on the bed, and Ilyusha's overjoyed, just absolutely overjoyed. And Kolya tells him that it's his dog, it's, it's Zuchka, and the boy believes him. And it, it's a moment of extreme joy um, among all the kids. Um, Alyosha and Ilusha leave, and when they do, they start talking about their beliefs, philosophic beliefs, because Kolya prides himself in having a very sophisticated mind. Tells him he doesn't believe in God, he, um, he does believe in socialism, and he believes that there should be justice for all men. And he's always trying to impress people because he's so bright. And Alyosha catches him up on it and said, the words that you're speaking sound like words you've gotten from somebody else. And Kolya has to make a confession, and it's a rare one for him because he's usually too proud to admit there's anything wrong with him. And he confesses to being insecure, that he tries to put on a good face and impress people, and Alyosha's comment to him is, don't do that. Don't don't ever be don't ever be ashamed of being embarrassed. Don't ever be ashamed of being embarrassed. Um, and the um, Kolya says that he felt um, um, a tie of love forming between the two of them. And Al Alyosha says yes. And he tells Kolya to be careful because there are certain things that he's doing that make Alyosha aware that. Cal, um, Col Kolya could end up suffering later in life because of the sorts of things that he's doing. I want to stop for one moment before we go to um, Ivan because the book is going to end with these kids. My question at this point is why does we're going to go back to the kids, the book will end with them. Why does Dostoevsky or the narrator um, give us this scene involving Kolya and Ilyusha and um, Alyosha. Um, why here? What's going on? Why did he 
Why did he put the scene here? I think readers, you know, so, I mean, I, I, I hope by now everybody knows that these really great authors, Shakespeare, not, not, they don't put in things, you know, accidentally. This, this, this has a purpose, so it's the sort of, because the drama's been building, you know, you can pass it off, because um, it seems like nothing's happening. Why, what, why did Dostoevsky put this thing here? Gita, are you there? Gita, are you there? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Did you not know I was <laughs> going to do this? <laughs> you have any? Uh, you have any thoughts on this? You know, I'm going to give everybody in this room as much of a hard time as I can whenever. I... You have any thoughts, Gita, on this? What? Why did Dostoevsky do that? I don't know. So it's a puzzling, really, it's a puzzling section. Is there any chance because it's an act of kindness? And before, another um, previous in the book, um, Ivan was talking about his proving there was no God, and it dealt with the cruelty uh, toward children. Mm -hmm. Right. And this scene is where, um, you know, the dog is brought to bring comfort to the child and they're responding in a loving manner. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Anybody else? Couple of things, just I'll toss these out. I mean, it's... Dusky Essie wouldn't have put this in. I, my own sense of it is that Alyosha's, the, the reason for it is that Alyosha's starting his mission. That this is a look forward to the future because for the last two-thirds of the novel, if we can group the all the crises, Zosima's, um, Alyosha's, Dmitri, we're, we're seeing a Russia in crisis. It's a crisis of faith and two conflicting ideas, two I, two ways of looking, two ways of reading the world, two ways of reading the world are in biblical, scientific, are in conflict. Same thing in Melville's Moby Dick. These two things are coming into collision, and we've been involved in the crises that's produced by this conflict. Um, but out of it comes Zosima saying to Alyosha, leave the monastery, go out into the world. It seems to me that's what's going on. And this scene is meant to point to the future, and, and I just think it's a, it's a note of, it's an example of Dostoevsky's realism that he does not sentimentalize this. Kolya is a bright kid. He's so bright, but he's condescending. You can already see intellectual ideas forming in him. He's been listening to um, Rakuten and all these philosophers and reading, and he, he, he wants to sound smart, he wants to sound intelligent, he sounds like all these educated people. There's a, a strong will in him. He, he has no scruples about putting people down. He did it in the marketplace when he was dealing with all those, you know, the sellers. So in some sense, he, he and, and Elusha's dying. He, he will die. So part of the youth, an honorable, because Elusha's an honorable kid. He, he's got something to Dmitri in him. Elusha is an honorable kid. He has a... Um, that you know the middle part of the soul. He's motivated by honor. 
He's embarrassed by his dad. He's going to fight these kids off. He takes on the whole gang. He dies. Part of that youth is dying. And um, part of it is moving forward. And, and there's an arrogance to Kolya, but he's really good. And what's interesting to me is the way in which Alyosha is very truthful with him about his faults, but he doesn't judge him. He, he's not He's not condemning him. He's warning him of dangers. And part of the beauty of the scene for me is that Kolya, who represents the future, looks forward, is taking something from Alyosha that he loves. He can feel something special in Alyosha that he doesn't find anywhere else. So there's a sense in which that love is going to be carried forward. Um, and the kids feel it. They admire Kolya. They're gonna, the book will end with everybody mourning um, Ilyusha's death. Um, so there are bonds. Um, it's not looking back to, an, they can't go back and recover a lost age. They can't go back, but the the and there are dangers going ahead, and it, it just seems to me what's going on between Alyosha and Kolya at this moment is an image of the tension that people are going to have to face in the future. To me, it's a really really touching scene. Any other thoughts or? So Bob, doesn't it kind of reflect? Dostoyevsky's theme of the book in a sense that you know let the people work you know work this problem out that's been created by the the difference in the various um, people yeah. you know the, the, the working class the, the elite yeah. and this is an example of where you know this whole thing between the two kids was kind of a, a bit of a misunderstanding and a, and a presumption on each parts about what the problem was and Alicia sort of helps them resolve that misunderstanding and they ultimately become fast friends and yep. to me it's kind of Dostoevsky's way of illustrating what he thinks the ultimate solution to the problem is yeah but maybe I overread it no 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 I don't I mean I, I couldn't agree more with that I'd, I'd be a little bit worried about the word ultimate because I Dostoevsky is so aware of the necessity, really for him, the necessity of suffering in the world. It's like nobody, nobody's going to escape it. That so long as, until the second coming, people are going to be involved with the suffering. And and I thought your way of putting it is a good description. That if there's going to be because they're not going to be able to look back to the monasteries, they're disappearing. Alyosha's back. I mean, that's what's so touching about him as a character. When Zosimov said. Do not come back to the, leave the monastery. Go out and begin your work. That I think in this scene we see exactly the sort of thing that there are going to be these little circles of people who 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 won't be so bound by the world around them that they that they they won't that they won't be able to love the way Christ has asked people to love and that and that Alyosha does. So I, I think I mean I I think it's a good way of putting it. Okay, let's go on. Can we go on? Um, book eleven. Okay, here comes Yvonne. The the. Sorry. I'm going to take chapter by chapter, and I'm going to try to summarize them very very quickly, 
So be patient if you would. It's it's my attempt to get everybody back in the book reading because it's it's a heavy book and a lot of reading. So um, um, go to book 11, chapter 1. I don't even know what the... Um, 563, somewhere in there. We'll be around there. I'm gonna I'm gonna move forward very very quickly. Um, Alyosha goes to see Grishenka. She's been sick for a long time. Those of you who are who've been around for a while know that in literature, um, typically, traditionally, when a character is sick, it's usually an indication of a spiritual change. It's true for Shakespeare, it's true for Jane Austen, when you watch somebody get sick in Jane Austen. It, it's typically an indication that um, somebody's going through a spiritual change, and it's almost as if the body, the weakness of the body can't sustain it. So very often illnesses are a sign of a spiritual change. They can also be a sign of the opposite. Because remember, at this point, Smirjikov's in the hospital. He's sick as well. But you can look at it as two different forms of illness. Um, she's been sick for a while, and um, she asks Alyosha to go see Dmitri because Dmitri and Ivan have been meeting secretly, and she suspects that Dmitri is um, falling out of love with her and falling back in love with Katrina, and she wants him to find out. Um, in chapter 2, um, and, and Alyosha says um, very firmly, he has no question about Dmitri's love for Grishenka. He, he knows his brother loves her, and he tells her that. Um, he goes to um, Madame um, Kokolakov um, because Lisi is sent for him, and when he comes... Um, we discover that Rakuten and um, Perkaton have been wooing her. And Perkaton wrote a poem about her, her foot because of an injury she had, and Rakuten was so critical of it that they almost got into a fight, and um, uh, Madame Kok Koklikov dismissed him from the home and told him not to come back. And it was at that point that he wrote a humiliating article on her. Um, he, so, and it's interesting, we'll come back to, the, well, no, here. When, Ali, when Alyosha's there and Madame um, Koklikov is describing the murder, she's convinced that Grigory killed the father and says it was in a fit of passion. And we know that that's not true, and I, we don't have time to go through it, but her words were, that's so much better. No, no, she says, Grigory did it, but it would be so much better if Dimitri did. And those are her words. What we learn in her, this is uh, just frightening, I mean, the innocence, it, what Dostoevsky does is sort of amazing. She presents this as if it's nothing. What she's making clear is that she lives in a, in a world of literary works, where she, she, her reading of the world depends on literary works. So she would rather have the outcome of this be that Dmitri 
killed him because it would be more dramatic. It would satisfy her sense of romance. Now, the reason I want to say that, and I want to underscore that, because we know that there are people like that. So I, I would call it the pathos of the soap opera. Emotionally, you just project this world out there. We know that Lisi, when, when we pick up the story now, Lisi's walking. When every other scene we've seen her in the story, she's been in a wheelchair. So it's pretty clear that, or at least the suggestion is, that her earlier illness was psychosomatic. Something having to do with her mom. And what emerges in, in, in this scene is a dark side to their relationship, mother-daughter, um, that's almost frightening to watch because when he when Alyosha leaves the mother and goes to see Lisa, let me turn to that. I want because it's too important. Um, let me look at a couple of these passages just quickly. <clears throat> let me look at um, Madame Kuklikov's um, words on 577. Yes, yes, it was Grigory. After Dmitri hit him, he lay there for a while, then got up, saw the door, went in, and killed Fyodor. But why? Why? Alyosha's, he doesn't know. I mean, he doesn't, he believes his brother didn't do it. He had, a fish, he had a fit of passion. She goes on, go down a few lines. That's how it was. Though I say it was Grigory, it was certainly Dmitri Fyodorovich, and that's much better. Oh, not better because the son killed his father. I'm not praising that. On the contrary, children should honor their parents. But it's still better if, if it was he, because then there'd be nothing to weep about. We, we got a glimpse of this. Remember when Dimitri came to her asking for money and she said, make your money in the mines. I mean, she just lives in this fantasy world and her daughter has been subject to it this whole time. Um, <clears throat> Go over to page 581. Um, it's here that Lisi and Alyosha meet, and she informs him that she's breaking off the engagement. And um, um, she says on 581 at the, at the top, he says, Why did you send? I wanted to tell you a wish of mine. I want someone to torment me, to marry me, and then torment me, deceive me, leave me, and go away. I don't want to be happy. What's going to happen now in the next subsequent pages is she's going to describe her desire to set fire, to destroy, even to kill. Um, she will say 582, there are even children about 12 years old who want very much to set fire to something and they do set fire to things. It's a sort of illness. That's wrong, wrong. Maybe there are children, but that's not what I'm talking about. You take evil for good. It's a momentary crisis. So after all, you do despise me. I don't want to do good. I want to do evil, and evil has nothing to illness has nothing to do with it. Why do evil? So that there will be nothing left anywhere. She wants to destroy things. Go down at the bottom. Um, there are moments when people love crime. Alyosha is doing all he can to acknowledge what she's saying and make it sensible. So it doesn't overwhelm her. Yes, yes, you've spoken my own thoughts. They love it. They all love it and love it always, not just at moments. You know, it's as if at some point they all agreed to lie about it and they've been lying about it ever since. She can't see anything but evil. Even the people who take some posture that there's some good. 
They all say and hate what's bad, but secretly they all love it. Are you still reading bad books? Yes, Mama reads them and hides them under her pillow, and I steal them. Aren't you ashamed to be ruining yourself? I want to ruin myself. How much of this has come from her mother's preoccupation with certain kinds of literary works, her whole stance on the world? I don't want to. I don't want to go on to this because I want to ask a question. She will. She will end the bitter part of this, describing a dream she has in which, or a book, sorry, she read, in which um, a Jew is described as crucifying a child. So it's an innocent child, and she says, "I'm that person. I'm crucifying that child." At the top of 584, good sometimes. I imagine that I, it was I who crucified him. He hangs there morning, and I sit down facing him, eating pineapple compote. I like pineapple compote very much. Do you? And you can, we're just watching this young feminine sensibility completely un, become undone. Um, go down to the bottom. That's good, Lisa, somehow rasped. When he walked out laughing, I felt it was good to be despised. The boy with his fingers cut off is good. To be despised is good. And she laughed in Alyosha's face, somehow wickedly and feverishly. You know, Alyosha, you know I'd like to... So, for a moment, it's as she catches the evil and says, Alyosha, save me, save me. The top of um, 585. I don't want to live because everything is so loathsome to me. Everything is so loathsome, so loathsome. Alyosha, why, why don't you love me at all? She finished in a frenzy. No, I do love you, Alyosha answered ardently. And I will, and will you weep for me? Will you? I will. Not because I didn't want to be your wife, just weep for me. Just so, if you know Alyosha and you follow Zosias, or Zosima, you know there's nothing he's going to do but love her or weep her. Weep for her. He leaves, and it, the chapter ends at the very bottom of 585. Ten seconds later, having released her hand, she went quietly and slowly to her chair. Um, she, she talks about poisoning herself, taking her life. She wants Alyosha to save her. She sends him away. Um, ten seconds later, having released her hand, she went quietly slowly to her chair, sat up straight, began looking intently at her blackened finger and the blood oozing from under the nail. Her lips trembled and she whispered very quickly to herself, mean, 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 mean. Because when she, when Alyosha left, you remember, she put her finger in the door and slammed the door on it. So she's watching it bleed. Now let me stop here before we go farther, because this is a prelude. It's a part of this whole section that will take us to Yvonne. Why did Dostoevsky put this here? Because things are getting very, very sinister. Why did he do this? Why is this Lisa episode here? Nikki, what do you say? <laughs> this is so strange because I'm seeing all of you in your own homes. I mean, there's sort of a different persona, you know, when you're in a classroom and it's, we're all in the same setting and, and there's a background, you know, I'm sure you're all aware. I mean, you're in your home, each one of you has a different background, a different, it's just sort of brings out a part of you that, Mark, did you have an answer? Did you have a response? Oh, no, you, you know, I, no, actually I was thinking about this when you asked the last one, is that 
I, you know, I, I rarely, you know, I will ask why about everything in my, in, in my world. Right. Except when I read literature, I don't ask why. I <laughs> why? Why would you take such? Why would you not take such world. a great thing and carry it into literature? Go well, on. but but I, I guess, and honestly, I was thinking about it. It never occurred to me to ask why is it here. I mean, I'm trying to understand the story. I'm trying to get the flow, see what's going on, look at the characters. But I've never. I mean, I just kind of accept it. It's kind of like you don't watch a movie. And say, well, well, why did King Kong climb the mountain or climb the building? I, you don't ask that. You just go, oh, King Kong climbing a building. You know. I just, mean, just I, just to let you hear another side in our family, because you know, I'm a movie admin. Mean, it's a big failing of mine. I watch too many movies. There's no way we could watch a movie in our family and and not and, and it's just interesting. There's no way we would have sat down to a table without my saying, now, why did this happen? Our kids have grown. I'm not kidding. I'm not. I, that why no, question no never stop. From I mean, it's a. I, I'm funny. I'm laughing at you because I just think what a natural thing if you did it everywhere else. Why wouldn't you do it here, God? I was thinking about that as you're asking that question. I mean, I you know I don't know. Anybody have a thought on this, Lisa? Um, Tracy. What can I say? I cannot tell you what a pleasure it is to see you. You and Sue, who have been away forever. God, it undoes me to see the two of you. It really does. Nobody? Come on, you guys. What, what's the matter with you guys? Come on here. It strikes me that it's another until we have faces moment. Go ahead, friend. Yeah, go. Go ahead. What? You've seen a lot of the characters you know, leading up to this last portion of the book, we see a lot of characters doing a lot of soul searching. And some come out of that, I think, you know, seeing clarity and the direction they need to go, and some of them don't. And to me, she's an example of someone, at least at this point, who has kind of gone to the rock bottom but hasn't found their way out yet. Yeah, she's lost in the cave. Boy, I, I'm going to put even an even darker spin on it. I, I mean, she is as close to a lost soul in this book as anybody. Demonic. Um, she wants to destroy. Wait, wait. Let me let me offer a couple of thoughts here. In, it's hard for me to read this without seeing her as a counterpart to Yvonne. You know, the nihilist, to destroy, um, um, negative, no God. Um, you can do anything. But the, what makes it dark for me is her mother, because in the beginning, the, the mother was, you know, to all appearances, this madam, and she's wealthy, and, but there are all these little pieces of evidence, like the books she, she reads, or hides, or in her comment about Grigory, and it would be better if it were Dimitri, and to romanticize things. Uh, her mother lives in an unreal world, unreal world, absolutely. Most of the book focuses on male characters. But here we, we're, we're, we're given an instance in which um, the focus is on a mother and a child and we're watching the, the most awful things happen with this child that her view of the world is so out of tune with the goodness in the world. She, I mean, it, it brings uh, Boethius into it. You know, I mean, most of the people in here can find some good. At this point in her life, Lisi can't. She wants to destroy things. She wants to set fire, and and um, one of the I mean, her hitting the nail, you know, putting her finger in the door, 
when I when I watch this, here's one of the questions. Mark, here's a question for here's one of the questions I ask. You know, when I came to the scene, when I hear about all these young women making cuttings, and it's more prevalent among young women because I think emotionally they're far more susceptible. Um, when you when you when I think about those women, the the question that I have, those young women, if you live in a world, if you live in a in a bourgeois world that makes comfort and security the end of everything, and that is modern America, it's a utopian world. If you grow up in that world of respectability and order and righteousness, look what I've done, look what I've earned, look how good I am, how wealthy I am, how settled I am. I mean, we've been watching that world get demolished. Um, Scarlet Letter, Moby Dick, uh, Faulkner's The Town. We've been watching, we've been unmasking that world book after book after book. I can't look at the Lisa mother scene without seeing, here's the counterpart in a feminine world. When I think about young girls doing cuttings, one of the, quest one of the questions I ask is, if you grow up in this world and there's something in your consciousness aware that there's something in you not good, what do you do about it? How can you express it? A Catholic growing up has got sacraments. I mean, you can't be in a Catholic world and not, you, the Mass starts with a confession, contrition, act of contrition. You can't live in a Catholic world, well, I mean, people do, obviously, but, but the whole spirit of the Catholic world is contrition, confession, sin, um, atonement. If you, if you live in a world, I remember seeing a movie called Unforgiven with Diana Lane in it, where she had an affair and, and it just, you know, it just spiraled. If you live in a world, a, a, a bourgeois world, that sees material comfort as the final end, and you've got longings or desires or sins that make you feel lo a loathing for yourself or a disgust or... How do you express it? I don't think it's an action when she goes to the door and puts her finger in the door to slam it. Um, something in her wants to punish herself. She has no way of dealing with the bad in her. Her mom's not helped her. Whatever goes on in those books she's reading. And when you think about what the mother's doing, you've got a picture of a mother who lives in this romantic world that's completely out of touch with things. So in some ways it's just a sexual counterpart. It's showing um, what can go on, you know, in the in a feminine psyche. Um, and in this case, it's it's not Fyodor, the father, and Smerdyakov, or his three sons, and their problems. It's a mother and her daughter. So, um, and it, it's right on the verge of our going, because there's something demonic. She's hearing demonic voices. She has to wound herself. She hates herself. She wants to kill herself. She's calling for help. Um, we're about to enter the darkest part of the novel because Ivan's going to deal with Smerdyakov and then he's going to deal with the devil. So let me stop for a minute. Um, this stuff is wearing me out. I'm going to go get a sip of wine and I'll be right. I'll be right back. No, oh, my wife's swearing at me. Her words were, "Damn it, you stay here." I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna be right back. <laughs> oh.
Are you guys, do you, are you all, is the lighting okay with all of your pictures? I just noticed Suzanne put a, thanks. Thank you. Thanks. That's a lie. There's a lamp, is that lamp bothering? Is it, are, is the lighting okay? No? I'm going to just switch that directly behind me, Doc. Okay. Okay, let's let's get to Yvonne. In chapter, f any or any more thoughts on Lisa? Anybody want to offer anything more on her? Um, we're getting we're getting to what we could call the inferno, you know, from Dante's. We're getting we're entering an infernal world with Lisi and Yvonne. Um, Bob? Yes. I have a question. When you were talking about Lisa, and obviously she has problems, but she's drawn to Alicia, who is a very spiritual, very in touch with God. Yes. Person. Yes. Um, I mean, did Elisa have no no um, belief in that? I mean, was she not ever uh, taught? I mean, why is she so so hopeless? I don't. I mean, I don't know that I myself would say hopeless, but I'd say I we I don't know that we know much about that, Kathy. Um, I I I don't know that I I I'm not sure that I would use the word hopeless because. That closes things down. I, I, my own reading of her at this point is, she, she's in spiritual danger. She's in real danger. Um, her mother is not going to be a source of help. She's turning away from Alyosha. He won't stop loving her. I, it, to put it in, in, I mean, Mark's question. You know, the question that I, that I go. There's a why for me everywhere. I, I can't read a book without asking why every other sentence. I would say that Dostoevsky's putting her here the way he did Ilusha, you know, in the in the group of boys scene, right. to show us grave dangers. And in, in this instance, it involves a young girl. Um, but I wouldn't say she's hopeless, but I, I think he's showing how grave the spiritual dangers can be, that they can approach something demonic. Um, she is self-tortured. She is in pain. Um, the last time we saw them, if you remember, or in, in the earlier scenes when the two of them were engaged, there was that playful exchange where she's a very proud girl, very, very proud. And it was a hard time for the two of them to open up, particularly for her and her pride. But she finally did. And there was that wonderful exchange where she got past her pride and the two were engaged. So there's a lot of good in her, you know, but at this point in the novel, um, particularly when you put her with her mom, it's just a, it's a, I think a real spiritual danger, but I, I wouldn't say hopeless, but, but it's, it's certainly dark. Um, a spiritual crisis? For sure. Yeah, of a, of a, of a real dark extent. Right. Let's go to let's go to Yvonne. Okay. Um, 
I've already read the passage from Dimitri. Um, Alyosha goes back to Dimitri, and it's at that point in chapter 4 that he acknowledges that he wants to suffer, that to suffer with all, for all. He acknowledges his sin, and he's learned to see himself as he is. Those were his words, you know, at the, in the final part of the interrogation, final stages of the interrogation. He said, I've never seen myself so clearly. He was humiliated, embarrassed, undressed. He had to admit all of his sins. He did. So here in chapter 4, he's, a, he's in jail. He, the likelihood he's going to be sentenced to Siberia. And we know that he wants to suffer. He genuinely does. But he also is frightened because he, he says, if he goes without Grushenka, if he goes by himself, he doesn't know that he'll have the strength to survive it. So we know that he's facing an or himself an ordeal at this um, point. Um, Alyosha goes to Katrina. She, um, he meets Ivan coming out and um, asks Ivan if he thinks Dmitri killed the father, and Ivan says he does. And Alyosha says, I've come to, God sent me to tell you that's not so. And when Ivan hears those words, he said, how did you know that? Because he associates it with the devil who's been coming to him. So we know that at this point, um, if Ivan has already had several, a couple of meetings with Smirjikov and the devil. And he thinks Alyosha knows that, although he doesn't. Um, so, Ivan goes to the hospital to visit with Smirjikov, and Smirjikov, the, the question is asked, why Smirjikov sent him to um, Shamashna, and um, I think, this is a little bit confusing for me, but I think <coughs> Smirjikov's reasoning is he wanted him to be closer so that nobody could accuse him of abandoning his father because everybody assumed that Dmitri was going to kill his father. Um, but, it's, but it's then that Smirjikov begins to insinuate that Ivan was implicated in the murder. He has a second meeting with Smirjikov, and um, Smirjikov accuses Dmitri of wanting his father dead, and that's why he left. And he also did it to get his inheritance. And for the first time in the novel, I think, or... or in a blatant way, Ivan has to look at his own soul and realize there are things in him that are not good that he's never looked at. It's at this moment he feels implicated in his father's death because he acknowledges that he did want him dead. Um, he goes to Katrina hoping she can relieve him and she presents him with a letter from Dmitri um, informing her that he was going to kill the father. So Ivan thinks that, once again, that Dmitri killed him, and he's not implicated. Um, but, he, uh, but he wants to take part of the money he gets from the inheritance and help Dmit or Dmitri flee. And he asks himself whether he's not doing it out of guilt. <coughs> so even for a moment, even if Katrina seems to relieve, give, offer some relief in his conscience... He's not completely relieved. He's, he's now beginning to wrestle with the question of whether or not he was implicated um, in his father's death. 
He goes to Smirjikov a, th a third time, and it's at this point that um, Smirjikov actually confesses. He says he killed his father. He brings out the money to show it, and then he makes clear that the that um, that the reason um, Ivan went to um, Shermashna was to be out of the way so he couldn't be implicated. But everything that Ivan had said to Smirjikov from the beginning, and remember when they all met at the home and they were having that argument about whether God exists and whether all things are permissible. Smirjikov says, it was you who did it. I was simply acting out your beliefs. There is no God. Anything's permissible. His understanding was that was his permission, his encouragement for Smirjikov to kill the old man. And he says, you did it. I was only an instrument, a means to the to the crime. Ivan goes home um, and he says to Smerjikov before he leaves, I'll I'll bring this up in court and prove that you committed the crime. And rem remember, this is really interesting. Um, I should ask you this question. Remember, um, Ivan doesn't believe in virtue. He doesn't believe in the immortality or questions it. He, and pre Pretty clearly through the book, he he he, he approaches a position of not believing. <clears throat> he doesn't believe in the immortality of the soul. He doesn't believe in God, and he doesn't believe in virtue. Is there any reason for having reservations about his positions at this point with respect to virtue, just virtue itself? <clears throat> I've got to have some water, not wine. Well, uh, how could he feel guilty about, you know, being uh, in any way related to the father's murder if he has no virtue, if he doesn't care, if he doesn't believe in God? He, it's, he said, he, you yeah, know, there was point. a guilt feeling. Right, right. How could he feel guilty if, if, if uh, there's no Right, right. Yeah. yeah, good point. Well, but why would he... If he's if he's if he's, he's looking as you said earlier, he was looking for justification in the conversation. You know, I was acting on your will. I'm your instrument. Smirka. I'm not saying his, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying is virtuous by any stretch of the imagination. But if you were truly didn't care, it wouldn't matter. You wouldn't have to have that discussion at all. Right. If you right. If you're, if you're evil about it, you're not looking for any justification. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Good point, both of you. Two other things to keep on mind. Um, one is that the devil says to him at this point in their meeting, when um, when Ivan says, or Smirjikov, sorry, um, I'm going to take that to court tomorrow to prove that you did it. Um, he's going to do a virtuous act. The devil's actually going to bring that up, I think, if I remember. And the other, the other interesting thing, and I, Dostoevsky's so good. Do you remember what happened when... Um, Ivan set out to see Smirjikov in their last visit, or went home, went, yeah, went home and met the devil. Do you remember what happened at the beginning of that scene, and at the end of it? Mm -mm. There was a peasant in the road that had fallen, and he drove by him on the way, and on the way back he picked him up and took him to get care. It's like mm. the, the man on the road. So. No matter what 
Yvonne says outwardly, over and over again, Dostoevsky makes it clear that there is some real integrity at the center of this man's soul. It, it just, to me, it increases his anguish. But um, Okay, go to 635. We've got to look at the devil. This is, I, I just think this is, I don't, I don't know, I don't know personally. I mean, my, I, I've read some, but I don't have any pretensions about reading a lot, but I'm not aware of another work in literature that has a scene like this. M to me, Milton's Paradise Lost doesn't come close. Um, Yvonne comes home, and he sits down, and he sees across from him on the couch this figure um, he's seedy, he's old, he's got on worn clothes, um, um, he's out of date, he's called a sponger, where are we, 635, um, in the middle of 635, it was some gentleman, or rather a certain type of Russian gentleman, no longer young, que frise, La Cinquantaine. Um, I can't remember what that meant. Who, who makes? It's nothing of it. <clears throat> with not too much gray in his dark, rather long, still thick hair, <clears throat> with a pointed beard, wearing a sort of brown jacket, evidently from the best of tailors, <clears throat> but already shabby. Made approximately three. So this guy. Um, Anybody's response to the description of the devil? I think one of the beautiful things about this is so when I think when human beings think about the devil, it's got to be this flashing figure or this startling figure that evil's got to take a kind of dramatic form, you know. But what Dostoevsky's showing here is it's is is that the the images of is of absolute mediocrity. Like he could hide anywhere and not be seen. He wouldn't stand out at all. And yet er, and everything he does plays to Yvonne, he makes fun of him, picks up his own arguments, uses against them. It's not like fire and brimstone coming into your living room. Um, it, he's frightening in his mediocrity is the best way that I can put it um, the devil starts telling stories that use um, physical objects the axe in space um, he had an illness that was cured um, the doctors didn't want to present the evidence because it called into question their stance because and they say, he's quoting the doctors it's, um, it's passe to believe in God but it's not passe to believe in the devil. So lots of modern men will deny the existence of God and openly acknowledge evil all around them. Um, so this guy is cunning, sharp. Um, he plays, he, it's almost like watching a cat play with a mouse. Um, go on over, I want to try to make this short because I, I want to leave a minute for um, for some questions here. He asks him if he believes in God and he's not sure what to say. And they discuss philosophic arguments on the matter. Um, 
the devil gives him an example of something, and uh, Ivan's answer is, of course you said that because it came from me. So throughout the whole dialogue, it, it seems to me it's, it's hard to watch it and not wonder if he isn't in fact a, an hallucination. Yvonne's already gone to the doctor and the doctor has um, um, diagnosed him as having brain fever, that he's having hallucinations. So all of this could be nothing more than hallucinations. And by the way, there are lots of critics who read it that way, that these are hallucinations. On page 648, My friend, I know a most charming and dear young Russian gentleman, a thinker and a great lover of literature and other fine things, the author of a promising poem called Grand Inquisitor. So is this some dark side in Ivan himself, like Lisi, who is um, expressing a, um, an outrage at some part of him that wants to torment him because the devil's flattering him with this poem. Um, I forbid you to speak of the Grand Inquisitor, Ivan exclaimed, blushing. Well, and what about the geological cataclysm? Remember that? What a poem. Shut up or I'll kill you. I think this is important. Kill me? No, excuse me, but I will have my say. I came in order to treat myself to that pleasure. Oh, I love the dreams of my friends. He goes on again. Um, Middle of 649, <clears throat> he repeats the principle, in this sense, everything is permitted him. Moreover, since God and immortality do not exist in any case, even if this period should never come, the new man is allowed to become a man-god, though it be he alone in the whole world, and of course in this new rank to jump lightheartedly over any formal moral obstacle of the former slave man. That is, what he's doing is taking um, social contract, Marxism and projecting them forward as if the state could create a new world without a god and the product of it would be this man who would not, a new man who would no longer need god or be subservient he would be a man god there is no law for god where god stands there is the place of god where I stand there is once be the foremost place everything is permitted and that's that um, Ivan throws the glass at him at the bottom of 649. Ah, mais c'est bête, the latter exclaimed, jumping up from the sofa and, and shaking the spatters of tea off himself. He remembered, this is so interesting, he remembered Luther, Luther, Luther's inkstand because when Luther was um, writing one of the translations, Luther was given to rages and he got outraged because he, he thought he had a vision of the devil tempting him and he threw it. It's recorded in his um, notes. And it's at that point um, that um, Ivan hears a knocking at the door and Alyosha comes in and um, says that Smirjikov has killed himself. Now, I wish I could have concluded this a few minutes earlier because I'd like some time, but let me give you just a, cup, a couple of questions that we can spend a few minutes on and then we can pick them up next week if it's too late. How do we look at Ivan's crisis? First question. How do, we, how do we understand? What do we do with this? Dmitri's crisis was in, um, took us to emotional depths. He's a good man. Um, we, I think, if we're reading well, we suspect that he's the killer. But we're watching a man um, undress himself, be undressed, humiliated. And it just seems to me it's hard not to like him. 
and extends he's in prison. We still believe he's guilty. It's only when Ivan meets with Smerdyakov that we find out that Smerdyakov had killed him. And he gives the account, and the account squares perfectly with all the events. So we know now, finally, Dmitri did not kill his father. So even though there, the, the Dmitri crisis continues because he's in jail and he's facing a trial, we don't know what the outcome of that trial is going to be. Right now we know he's not guilty. So what, how do we look at Ivan's crisis? Um, and just, just to remind you, scientific experts have been coming in all along and giving um, diagnoses for ailments, and every one of them has proven to have been wrong or short-sighted. So this tension between science and religion is just getting deeper. Lisi's doctors tell her that she just needs to go to a, sanat um, a sanatorium in the mountain. I want everybody to hold on to that. The doctors look at her and see a girl, a young girl, going through some problems and say, all you need to do is get rest in a mountain. We're seeing something very different. Rakitin argues that Dimitri's innocent. His argument that he makes public is that what Dimitri did was a product of his environment. These are all modern theories. I mean, you can't, you can't live today and not hear them still espoused. Katina, Katrina and Ivan call in a lawyer to get Dimitri off because he's insane. I think he's insane. Ivan's doctors tell Ivan he's having a breakdown, that he's having hallucinations. So I'm, I'm sorry Marcy's not here. How well do people read? I know she loves that question. How, how well are people reading in this book? What are they seeing? What is Dostoevsky showing us that all these educated modern experts are not seeing? The, and the, wait, hold on. Wait, sorry. Let, give me one. The crux of this goes to the devil. We're seeing Smirjikov. Everybody sees Smirjikov in a certain light. Now we're learning to see him in another light. From one perspective, on one level, Ivan seems to be the most intelligent man, the brightest man in the book. He's got a poet's soul. He, he wrote Grand Inquisitor. He's really bright. Um, how do we look at him when we set him next to Smirjikov? And finally, is the devil real? Or is he a figment of this feverish condition that Ivan has slipped into? So, and the final question, I don't even want to take this up now, but just to um, um, anticipate next week. Who is Smirjikov? What do we make of him? How, what, what, how, remember, he's, he's Fyodor's illegitimate son, lawless. And um, so those are major questions, but right now the, the question that we just have a minute for and, and then I'll stop is how do we look at Ivan's struggle? Um, Um, is the devil real? Fred, sorry, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that it seems like if we go back to that, the, the, the concentric circle diagram that you drew, With where you have the intellect, the spirit, oh, oh, yeah. the appetites, right. it seems like what, what we're seeing is each character struggle within where they fit within that series of concentric circles so Ivan's 
Ivan's crisis is one of intellect. Uh, Dimitri's crisis is more of a of an appetite type crisis. He's embarrassed because he's undressed in front of uh, the Inquisitor, and he's worried about his toenails. Uh, Alicia's crisis was one in spirit, and it took. And, and I think one of the one of my takeaways, anyway, is that those crises have to be dealt with in in their context in order to be resolved. So Alicia resolved his conflict because it was dealt with spiritually. Um, Sosimo came to him in his in his dream and addressed his conflict in a in a spiritual way. Um, Dimitri managed to evolve from his crisis because it was dealt with in a sphere that he understood. Um, Ivan Ivan's crisis was dealt with in a in an intellectual sphere, and there was no one to help him resolve that crisis. Uh, the devil, if you will, or whether he was internal of his part, whichever direction you want to go, it was dealt with in an arena where he was incapable of finding resolution for that crisis. And we see the frustration when someone in that intellectual circle tries to deal with somebody's crisis in a different circle, whether it's spiritual or appetite, because there's no way for them to, to communicate. Yeah. One of the, I mean, one of my questions, sort of, because this takes us outside of Plato's image, but every one of those, I would, I would put Dimitri in the middle as a, as a spirit of it. Let's wait on that. Um, one of the, one of the, one of the things that complicates what's going on in that crisis for each of those characters is, every one of them is seen in relationship to a faith in God, that's not an issue for Plato in the cave. Um, but my question right now is, what, how do what how do we understand how do we understand how do we understand um ivan's crisis when we the way it plays out with smerdjakov what do we learn about ivan or even smerdjakov because right now it's it's not dmitri with the interrogators or zasimov with um alyosha or the stranger it's Ivan with Smerdyakov, who has been looked at all along as an idiot, an uneducated idiot. And Doug, what do you do? You have any th thoughts on that, Ivan? You mean his crisis? The way it's presented with Smerdyakov, what we learned about the two of them. Um, neither one of them saw the other one accurately. Can you all hear, Doc? Okay. Yes. Um, that. Smerdyakov misunderstood Ivan, maybe willfully misunderstood him, but misunderstood him. Um, and Ivan certainly underestimated Smerdyakov. Um, I am still turning over in my head why Smerdyakov killed himself. I know. Um, yeah. But I think Ivan learned something about himself that he's not happy about. Which is? Just his 
confrontation with the devil, if the devil is, either he's going mad, which he doesn't want to do, or the devil is real, um, which means that God is real, um, so there's just sort of no easy out for Ivan. Ivan, yeah. Let me stop here, okay? Let me just leave you with a couple of questions. I mean, I, I want to pick this up with Suzanne's comments, and because the um, Dostoevsky has put the two men together, Smirchkov and Ivan. Ivan is, in so many ways, the intellectual superior of everybody in this book. He's so bright, and yet he's undone here by somebody who's not had his education. Everybody looks down on, and and yet Smirchkov outwits him. I mean, he's he's a step ahead of him. Everything he does, he's anticipating him, and and he reveals things to Ivan that Ivan didn't want to see about himself. So he has, he had. I mean, to go back to Fred's thing with um, um, to have faces, you know, that um, Ivan's having to look at things in himself that he has never had to see before. So there's a lot of unveiling, a lot of um, unmasking with Lisi. Dimitri, and now Ivan. So I just want to start here when we come. And the other question that I want to ask, that I really I want to, I want to get a firm answer on. I've read some things online with study guides, just trying to get a sense of what people say about this. I came across. I'm not going to identify. It. I came across a study guide that poo-pawed everything that was going on in this last part with the Ivan section, and and put it in terms of questions that made it clear that. Um, Dostoevsky was questioning whether there was a god or a devil or so we've we've got we've got to take some time with this question is the devil real because if he's just a hallucination if he's just a figment of Ivan's imagination then we can't resolve this question in terms of the book whether god exists and whether there are devils and now we aren't to understand it, except, except, seems to me that the world is going. I mean, if God doesn't exist, you can say everything's permissible, and the world's going to hell. So I'd like to pick up this question, and then I'd like to take just a few minutes on that Platonic scheme. Remember, the scheme is reason, spiritedness, appetites. Spiritedness and appetites are both their desires, both of them. Spiritedness is different from the appetites because spiritedness is, it's an anger, it's a readiness to get angry, it's a soldier's, it's a response to the higher transcend, transcendent realities, truth, goodness, beauty, love, honor, those fellowship, you know. The appetites are direct, the desire is directed towards physical things. So where are the characters? Because there are three dominant characters and they seem to line up and yet we're in a Christian world. Is, is Dostoevsky changing Plato's understanding of the soul? Because Dostoevsky believes from everything at the center of the, from everything, if, if we look at Zosimov as a moral center, spiritual center of the book, Christ is real, he's God, he introduced a love into the world that the world didn't know. So is Dostoevsky changing that? Um, What's the order of the soul? Against what do we measure these characters? Ivan, Dmitri, Alyosha, Smerdjikov, Fyodor. How, how are we to see them? Okay. 
those are those are some of the major questions and if, if we can just keep with that I, we're not going to take any more time now but if we can just hold on to that image and, and keep my question in mind does Dostoevsky change it apply it not only to Fyodor the father Dmitri, Ivan, Alyosha, Smirjka, but um, Lisa, Katrina, Grushenka. Um, where are the characters at the end of this story? Um, and this may be a little bit outlasting, but I've got to ask it. Do we learn anything? Do we learn anything about America from looking at Dostoevsky's Russia? Did you all hear that last question? Yeah. Did you hear it, Francis? Did, do we learn anything about America from looking at um, Dostoevsky's 19th century Russia? Okay. It's really good to see some of you, particularly those who have been strangers for a while. Really good to see you guys. Okay. You guys, you guys all stay safe. You all stay safe. Okay. Dangerous times. You guys stay safe. You too, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. I don't know why, but I would really like some red wine. I'll open some. Hmm? I'll open some. I'll get it, Doc. Is there anything for you? Can you put the lamp? Where'd you get the lamp? Why did you bring it? Because Mike said when we first started that first night, he said we have to be careful when it starts to get dark if we've been depending on. But it. I think it shows, Doc. I, it, I it, it does. No, no, it does. When because um, Mary Jane's darkened and somebody else darkened a week ago. But if you look at the pictures, they'll either start to darken or stay light. And all our all of our pictures except Mary Jane's was pretty well lit. Can you put that light there? Yeah. Mm.